Hi, my name is Abby, and I'm a volunteer here at Recovery Radio. Did you know that September is National Recovery Month? This is a great opportunity for you to get involved by contributing to our fundraiser. Just go to recoveryradio.net and click the Donate button. It's just that simple to become part of the solution. Well, hello, North Carolina. Are you guys excited to be in recovery? All right. You guys excited for a wonderful conference? You guys going to help me kick off this conference with a bang? All right. So let's do this. I'm an act named George. I'm a grateful, proud, and loud, literature quoting, basic text dumping, suggestion taking, Step working, tradition abiding, t-shirt wearing, belt buckle rocking, collar popping, podium pimping, card carrying member of Narcotics Anonymous. I am grateful and excited to be here. Uh, you guys weren't lying when you told me to suit up and show up. I can't remember the last time I dressed like this. Actually, it was a wedding a few months ago. But uh, we clean up real well in recovery, don't we? And uh, I just want to express some, some gratitude to the Council of Fellowship Hall and uh, uh, the great, wonderful welcome that you guys have bestowed upon me. Um, you guys are awesome. Uh, special thanks to the uh, council for uh, inviting this addict all the way from Daytona Beach, Florida, to come share my experience, strength, and hope. I want to thank uh, everyone on the council and, and the committee and all the hard workers of Fellowship Hall. Apparently, you guys are doing some great things at Fellowship Hall. You guys are changing lives. And uh, that's a wonderful thing that uh, you guys have uh, invited me uh, to come be your speaker for tonight, to be your NA speaker. First of all, I'd like to say I do not represent uh, the Fellowship of Narcotics Anonymous, and for that, the World Service Office is extremely grateful, because <laughs> I have my opinions, and, uh, and that's okay. But all I'm here to do is share my experience, my strength, and my hope. And uh, a couple of really Heartfelt thank yous to, to Rick, uh, who has gone out of his way to, to be my host. He carried my books up here. Isn't that awesome? He probably would have done a lot more if I asked him, but I was going to take it easy on him. I'd like to thank uh, my friend Mike, Michael. Um, we, we met a few years ago in the Florida Symposium down in Orlando, and uh, we've remained friends since. Now, now look how... Recovery works. This man, I mean, we know each other, but we don't really know each other. We, like, know each other through, through service. And, and uh, he heard I was coming up here, and he offered me his car while I was up here. Never in a million years would I have thought somebody would give me the keys to his car <laughs> and say, have a good time. Enjoy green. Enjoy North Carolina while you're here. 
So I did. I drove all over town today. Me and my wonderful woman in my life, JC, thank you so much for being a strong woman in recovery. Um, we have what I like to call, we're having an, inter-re- an inter- interracial relationship. She's an AA girl. I'm an NA guy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they say behind every strong man is an even stronger woman. JC does not stand behind me. She stands right next to me. And we're partners on the road of recovery. She works her program. She has her sponsor. That's none of my business. I work my program. I have my sponsor. That's none of her business. And in, and in doing that and working a program of, of, of recovery, we have a healthy relationship today. And I think uh, sometimes relationships get a bad rep in recovery. But, but I'm telling you, healthy, long-lasting relationships are possible in recovery. My sponsor and his wife uh, have been together for over 27 years. They both have over 30 years clean, and uh, and those are like some of the people that I look up to, and uh, and like thank you for uh, allowing this member of Narcotics Anonymous to share my experience, my strength, and my hope. And I think sometimes NA gets a bad reputation. That's okay. Uh, um, you know, I hear things about there's no uh, you know no clean time in Narcotics Anonymous, and uh, and uh, and no recovery in Narcotics Anonymous. And I, I don't really know where that comes from. And, and that's okay. But I know I am a proud member of Narcotics Anonymous. And I have the utmost respect for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because if it wasn't for Alcoholics Anonymous, a man by the name of Jimmy K. And if you don't know who Jimmy K is, ask your sponsor. And if your sponsor don't know, fire his ass and get a new one. February 2nd, 1950, a man by Jimmy K found the rooms of AA. And Jimmy was an addict. And uh, back then there was no NA. And I want to read something from our basic text real quick. These are Jimmy's words, too. When my addiction brought me to the point of complete powerlessness, uselessness, And surrender some 15 years ago, he wrote that in 1965, there was no N.A. I found A.A. and in that fellowship met met addicts who also found that program to be the answer to their problem. However, we knew that many were still going down the road of dissolution, degradation and death. Because they were unable to identify with the alcoholic in AA. Their, their identification was at the level of an apparent symptoms and not at the deeper level of emotions or feelings where empathy becomes a healing therapy for all addicted people. With several other addicts and some members of AA who had great faith in us and our program, we formed in July of 1953 what we now know as Narcotics Anonymous. We felt now that the addict would find from the start as much identification as each needed to continue to himself that he can stay clean by the example of others 
who have recovered for many years. That's a little bit of our history. And uh, this year, NA celebrated 62nd anniversary. And, uh, you know, NA didn't become the third oldest, second largest 12-step fellowship in the world for nothing. We're changing and saving lives in NA too. And, uh, and have the utmost respect for our predecessors. And have the utmost respect for, uh, for Jimmy K, who, who, who knew that addicts needed a place to recover. That addicts needed to identify. That addicts needed a program to call home. And when I found this program, I knew I was home. So uh, thank you for uh, uh, my predecessors. That If you're in this room that have been clean longer than I have, thank you for staying clean and continuing to carry this message and opening the doors. And um, And most importantly... I want to thank the new people, because without the new people, the future of recovery is in jeopardy. Now, I, I've been to a lot of meetings from South Florida to the South Bronx, all over the country, a few different places all over the world. And uh, and the Narcotics Anonymous, they always want to recognize all those with a year or more when they give out the key tags. When when they're done, they say, to show the program works with all those of you more, please raise your hand. And everyone will raise their hand. And when I was new, I hated you guys that raised your hand. I envied you guys so much. I wanted to raise my hand so bad. I think I stayed clean my first year of recovery just so I could damn raise my hand. It don't matter what keeps you coming back, just keep coming back. So I want to do something a little different tonight. If you got less than a year clean, can you just stand up and stand up proud? Come on. That right there. Did you see that? All you people with time might scare you. But that is the future of recovery. That's our, those are our future sponsors, those are our future chair people, those are our future trusted servants, those are our future circuit speakers. That's the future of recovery. And our literature tells us in the third tradition, that tells us our job is to fan the flames of desire, not dampen them. You know, back in the old school, you know, they would tell the newcomer to sit down, shut up, you got nothing to offer. That might have worked back then, but it's 2015. Don't tell me to sit down. I got rights. I got freedom of speech. What are you talking about? You know, this is about stand up and speak up. Right? If, if, if you have a burning desire, we can't read minds. You know, time and time again, you know, sharing is a vital part of staying clean and staying in recovery. Because time and time again, I've seen it. What happened to Joe Blow who sat in the back of the room? Joe never shared. Did he? No. Joe didn't get a sponsor. No. Joe didn't work steps. No. Joe wasn't involved in service. No. Where's Joe? Joe's dead. 
Joe's in prison. Joe's back in treatment. Joe's back in detox. So it's important. If you have questions and you want to stay clean and you're struggling to stay clean, share it. I don't care if you guys share it a million times. I don't care if you piss off a hundred old timers. Just keep sharing it. Of course, we, we don't want to hear your profound wisdom on the 12 steps at 30 days clean, because quite frankly, you don't have any right now. But if you want to stay clean, raise your hand and talk about it, because you can't keep my mouth shut in early recovery. I asked every question there was, you know, how do you stay clean? What's the book for? Where does the money in the basket go? How do you become president? All this stuff. I was curious. So, like, you know, thank you so much, you new people. Thank You know, you are the guys and girls. You are the reason why I am enthusiastic and passionate about recovery. To let you guys know that recovery is not a death sentence. It's not this boring, humdrum life. It's not this daily battle with with the disease. Recovery will give you a life beyond your wildest dreams. A life full of happiness, joy, and freedom. And I'm living proof of it. A life of happiness, joy, and freedom. Me and, and JC with Mike's truck today, we drove all the way up to Pilot Mountain. And it was just a wonderful experience, man. And I got up to the top of the mountain, and I look over the view, and I get overwhelmed. I get overwhelmed, because you have to understand, addiction, I never left where I was at. The disease had me on lockdown. So I'm up there in the mountains just looking out there. I get overwhelmed when I really take a good hard look on how beautiful life is today. Carrying this message has taken me all over the country and beyond our borders. I've had the privilege, uh, opportunity to share in so many different places, and I'm humbled by that when I get a phone call. I'm like, really, you got the right, George? You sure? So it is, it is a blessing and a privileged opportunity to share my experience, strength, and hope. So with all that being said, I'm here to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And without the truth, I don't have a message. And the funny thing about the truth is, I had to live a lifetime of lies to find the truth. I had to lie myself to the truth. And, uh, you know, I'd be lying if I told you guys I wasn't nervous. The fact of the matter is, I used to spend a lot of money to feel this way. My heart is racing. My palms are all tingly. My scalp is, is, is going crazy. I'm all shaking and nervous. And I'm a little paranoid about what you people are going to think about me. And that's okay. I embrace that feeling. My sponsor tells me that's God shaking the truth out of you. 
So like the day I ever get behind a podium and I'm not nervous, then I have to be concerned. And, uh, you know, that right there, what I just heard, is a beautiful thing. A bunch of addicts and alcoholics laughing. That is a beautiful sound. Because uh, where I came from, nobody was laughing. It was serious business. And I think laughter, laughter is such a powerful tool. Laughter can turn sadness into joy. Laughter can turn an enemy into a friend. Laughter can turn an awkward situation into a joyous, funny situation. Laughter is a powerful tool. you got to laugh to keep from crying. I believe it, it, it is the most natural and the most original of all our feelings. Because before we can walk, before we can talk, before we can think, before we can even take care of ourselves... There's one thing we all did, and that was laugh and smile. But look how powerful addiction is. It robbed from me. It took the smile off my face. It took the joy from my soul. It took the laughter from my voice. But through the 12 steps and the program of Narcotics Anonymous, I smile today. I laugh. I have a good time. Recovery is about having a good time today. And it seems to me, the longer I stay clean, the more twisted my sense of humor becomes. (laughs) You guys laugh and you guys know what I'm talking about. I swear, if there was like thought police, I would be serving 25 to life. I sit in meetings sometimes and stuff just comes out of nowhere. Like, where did that thought come from? Like, just crazy random thoughts that make me laugh. Now, <laughs> crazy random thoughts. I'm going to give you an example. Me and my me and my beautiful girlfriend, we're at our area convention in Daytona Beach, Florida, which is right on beautiful Daytona Beach at the Hilton. We got meetings on the beach and thousands of people walking around. And we're leaving the beach and the sun is shining and, and recovery is in the air and love is in the air. And, you know, and, and I love this woman with all, with all my heart. You know, we, you know, life is good, man. The wind is blowing. The sun is shining. We leave the beach. We walk out to A1A. And we ought to stop at, at the cross. Walk and all the traffic is coming by, and I'm standing there, and out of nowhere, a thought says, "Push her in the road." <laughs> out of nowhere, like where does that come from? And I chuckle, and I have a little grin on my face, and she looks over to me, and she says. Did you just think about pushing me in the road? <laughs> Great minds think alike. <laughs> Where does that stuff come from? I have no idea, but thank God I don't have to act on it today. Whoa. Well, thank God that recovery in the 12 steps has given me the most powerful tool in recovery is to pause. Stop. My sponsor tells me the best thing you can do sometimes, George, is just shut up. And, it, you know, it's just a wonderful thing, man. And um, 
Recovery is just a wonderful thing, man. And, uh, you know, we, we all have a story. Um, my story is probably no different than anyone in this room. And, uh, but at the end, we all ended up at the same place. We ended up at a place of desperation, hopelessness, homelessness, and despair. And then it seemed like there was a way out. I was so desperate. It's crazy, though, because that, that desperation that drove me to recovery has turned into this passion for recovery. I'm talking about being as passionate as only the desperate can. Like, I love my life today, but it was a long, hard road to get here. A long, hard road. Again, you know, to new people, welcome to the most exclusive fellowship in the world. You damn near got to die to become a member. I know much before I got here, but I know one thing was evident. The life was that I was living was killing me. And it took a hard, long road to get here. So I'm going to tell you a little story about how I get here. And, um, you know, I kind of tell my story kind of like a Quentin Tarantino movie, like, like, like Pulp Fiction. I'm going to jump around between some big, really pivotal, important plot points. And at the end, it's going to come full circle. And uh, I'm not going to spend too much time talking about using, because we all know how to use, we all know how to drink. We wouldn't be here if we didn't know how. And, uh, you know, and Narcotics Anonymous, it, it tells us, you know, we don't care what you use, how much you use, who you use it with. All we want to know about is your problem and how we can help. We don't care what you use. We don't care if you drank it, snorted it, shot it. Stuffed it up your butt. We don't care what you did with it. We just want to know how we can help. If you got a problem sniffing panties, we can help you with that. <laughs> Must be some panty sniffers in the room. We laugh through identification. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I'm not going to spend a, a whole lot of time about... My drug use. I'm going to sum up my drug use in one paragraph that Jimmy K. wrote. Most of us do not have to think twice about this question. We know our whole life and thinking was centered in drugs in one form or another. The getting and using and finding ways and means to get more. We live to use and use to live. Very simply, an addict is a man or woman whose life is controlled by drugs. We are people... Caught in the grip of a continuing and progressive illness whose ends are always the same. Jails, institutions, and death. That is who is an addict. Chapter 1. If you have any problem identifying with that simple paragraph, you're probably not an addict. I don't know. It's not my place to say. But right, right there, that right there sums up me as an addict. Those words that J Jimmy wrote. I believe we're divinely inspired. That right there sums up my drug use. That right there sums up who I am. Who is an addict? 
So when I tell my story, I'm not going to really get to tell a big drug log or, 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 or war story. You know, I'm, I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk about how the God of my understanding and new people let you know you're going to hear the word God a lot in recovery. And if you're anything like me, I came here with God issues because I had a certain vision of God. I was raised Roman Catholic. I went to Catholic school from kindergarten to the 10th grade. And those nuns put the fear of God in my heart. You know, the God I brought up with was I was a sinner. I needed to repent. I need to get good for God. And if I don't, I'm going to hell. That's a whole lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure to put on somebody. So by the time I got into the, into the rooms of recovery, you know, I had a certain vision of what God was. But, but like the most powerful thing, one of the most powerful things recovery in our 12 steps gives us is our third step. That we have the complete freedom to believe in anything that we want to believe in. The God of our understanding, the God of your understanding. Recovery and, and, a, and N.A. told me that I didn't have to get good enough for God. God met me at my absolute worst point, at the bottom of the barrel, from the ashes of addiction, and gave me a purpose. So don't get, you know, don't let the word God chase you out of the rooms of recovery. Because the dope will just chase you right back in here. You'll be praying for God then. But God is whatever you want it to be. We're open-minded in recovery. We don't care if you're Christian, if you're Muslim, if you're atheist, if you're agnostic. We don't care. Just believe in something. And I know when I look at my life, I know there had to be a God taking care of me. You know, um, our literature talks about, it says... Some of us think, some of us believe that our, de- that our disease was present long before the first time we used drugs. And when I, when I put pen to paper in my fourth step, I, I can see I had all that addict behavior long before dr- drugs came along. Long before drugs came along. If you ask my mom, she'll tell you, oh, the pain in the butt. Long before I was even born. I put my mother through six weeks of false labor. And then I came out two months early, ready to wreak havoc on the world. And childbirth was a traumatic experience. It took me a year to walk. Take a second. And my mom calls me her little miracle baby. You know, what I talk about is... Divine intervention, how the God of my understanding kept me alive long enough to find the rooms of recovery, to find the rooms of Narcotics Anonymous. And, um, you know, my mom says I was just one, I was just one of those kids that just got always got into something. And, and, you know, some traumatic stuff, too. My first memory at two years old, my mom calls me her little miracle child. My first memory at two years old, I remember it. I was running out. I lived, I grew up in the Bronx in New York City. Um, I grew up to uh, two 
uh, two great, loving Latino parents. Both my parents are uh, born in Puerto Rico. I was born in New York City, so that kind of makes me sort of Rican. <laughs> I don't speak a, leak, a lick of Spanish, but I understand it perfectly. I don't know what that's about. Um, but, you know, I grew up and, and you know, I didn't cr- grow up in a, in a bad family, man. You know, of course, we all have our issues in our family, but I, I grew up in a very loving household. My, you know, I grew up in a very, you know, my, my mom was a housewife and, and, and took care of the kids. And when she would occasionally, you know, take some odd jobs there, but she took care of the home. That was her job. And dad worked his butt off to provide for the family. And, uh, you know, my... My parents are coming up on being married 55 years. That's just baffling. My, my mother has been with one man her entire life. They got married when they were 17 and 18 years old. My dad has been with one woman his entire life. Did you guys just hear that? You don't even talk about my sexual inventory and my forceps. Holy crap. So, like, you know, like the principles of recovery are not foreign to me. You know, principles of, of honesty and respect and responsibility and, and belief and hope and trustworthiness and brotherly love and commitment and, and acceptance. All that stuff, my parents try to teach me, but it just didn't stick. It's like growing up all over again in recovery. So, like, yeah, getting back, I told you I'm going to jump around a lot, so back to the political pop point. My first memory, man, I, I'm running outside at two years old. My brother is shoveling the snow. I come up running behind him. He goes to the, throw the snow behind him, hit me right in the face. That's how I got this scar right here. My, I remember white, white, pure white snow with red blood all over it. My mom screaming. I was two years old. My, my mom said... The scar looked so big. She said it looked like I had two mouths. And uh, my brother said it was an accident, kind of plausible. <laughs> so, like, you know, just those little things that, like, like, God had a plan for me. That following summer when I was three years old, the same brother who was supposed to be watching me, he looked away or something and I wasn't paying attention. I called for him to cross me to cross me cross the street. He didn't hear, so I just ran across the street. This nineteen seventy eight station wagon came pointing down the street, screeched on his brakes, and hit me at three years old. I fractured my ribs, broke my leg. My brother said I went flying through the air. At five years old, I fell out of a one-story window, landed right on my head. My mother's like, Georgie, thank God you have a hard head. How God just took care of me. Now, I don't know about you guys, but growing up, and I'm sure we can all relate with this a little bit, long before drugs or alcohol or anything came in the picture, I had this thing inside me that said, you're not good enough, you're not slick enough, you're not cool enough, 
Nobody likes you. That's what I like to refer to as the original lie. That original lie was there long before any substance came in the picture. And I fed into that lie. I believed that lie. Now, the first time I used this wasn't because I like wanted to use or I wanted to get high. I really didn't know anything about it. First time I used was for acceptance. To fit in. To be part of the crowd. And I remember vividly where I was. It was at the Catholic school that I went to on Beach Avenue in the Bronx, New York. It was this down, it was an outside, they have these like staircases in New York City that go, they're like outside the street staircases that go down into the street. And uh, it went down into the street and there was a door that went, that went into the cafeteria and it was a red door. I remember that. And I used it for the first time. And an amazing thing happened. All of a sudden, I became good enough. I became cool enough. I became hip enough. I became slick enough. And everyone liked me. I bought into the second most dangerous lie. I bought into the lie that a substance was the solution to my problem, my problem being me. And I'll tell you what, it worked for a while. If it still worked, I wouldn't be here. But at the end, the higher I got, the lower I felt. At the end, my solution turned on me. And uh, from that moment on, I just chased it, I just chased it, I just chased it, I just chased it. And I did whatever I had to do to get that next one. And uh, I, I, I destroyed my relationship with my family, with my friends. I was a fairly good student. I, I said goodbye to school. Now look how twisted an addict mind is, or an alcoholic, because I'm sure we think the same. Most kids, normal kids, whatever that means, aspire and look forward to, like, going to school and going to college and meeting their sweetheart and, you know, having a career and getting married and having kids and buying a house and a white picket fence. That's normal. Not me. That doesn't look appealing at all. What's appealing to me is hanging out on the streets, destroying my relationship with my family, don't go to school, that hip, slick, and cool. <coughs> but I remember I had these two loving parents that believed in me. And, uh, you know, at 60 years old, you know, they had enough care and concern for their boy their baby boy. I am the youngest of the family. My, my mother had three boys back to back, 18 months apart. I came 10 years later after the last one. My mom was uh, hoping for a girl. 
I came out a boy. My brothers say, well, you came close, Mom. I'm the little baby of the family, little pretty boy, blah, 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 whatever, spoiled Ryan Blatt. And, but, uh, you know, my, my parents loved me enough, that that, you know, and, and some teachers in school loved me enough where they had an intervention. They sat me down and they showed my life for what it was. I knew nothing about recovery, 12 steps or, or, or any of that. All I know is that little talk they had hit at that other part of me. There's a thing that I like to refer as the spiritual conflict that I'm sure we all have gone through. In spite of the fact I was attracted to that street life, there was another part of me that really wanted to do good, that wanted to go to school, that wanted to be a good son and a good student. There was a part, and it was just like this constant tug of war. They went back and forth. You know, there was a part of me that really wanted to do good. Because I don't ever remember the day in school where they went around, Hey, Mary, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a lawyer. Hey, Bob, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a doctor. George, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a homeless dope fiend. Is there a school for that? Is there an application that I can sign? I would really like to try that out. You know, I you know. Addiction, the disease is so powerful, it robs for me things I can't touch, feel, hear, see. It robs for me my dreams, my hopes, my aspirations for my better life. It robs for me my spirit. But Narcotics Anonymous tells us that lost dreams awaken and new possibilities arise. So like my, my parents sat, sat me down, they hadn't... An intervention, I was able to tap down and tap into that part of me that wanted to, to, to do good. And my, those counselors and those teachers told me that thing that we probably all heard. Well, well George, you have so much potential. <laughs> and you're just messing it up. And you know what? And they were right. And, and I think an addict in general or an alcoholic, or whatever you choose to call yourself, has the most potential, most of the creative, industrious, driven people that I, that I know are in recovery. We get stuff done. We do. Who else can wake up broke on a Sunday morning and have a pocket full of cash by noon? We do that. So we... You know, it's not rocket science here, all you new people. That same drive of a using addict, you just flip it in recovery. No matter what, I was going to get high in recovery. No matter what, I'm staying clean. No matter what, I'm going to that next meeting. No matter what, I'm going to work the steps. No matter what, I'm going to call my sponsor. That same drive, we just use it and flip it in recovery. So, back again. So my parents sat me down and I was able to, to like, you know, I, there was a part of me that wanted to do good, knew nothing about recovery, 12-step meetings or anything. All I know is I wanted to do good. So I started applying myself. I started going back to school. I said all goodbye to the gangbangers that were hanging on the block and, 
And those teachers were right. I started applying myself. I started like getting good grades. I started feeling good. I stopped using for like a little while. At 16 years old, I like had a moment of clarity. But the past has a way of creeping up on you. Remember, this is about divine intervention. My story. This is about how God kept me alive long enough to find the rooms in Narcotics Anonymous. October 23rd, 1988. 16-year-old kid is walking to school. This guy I owed $10 for. For two nickel bags of weed. One even good weed, but he wanted his money back. We were 16 years old, and he wanted to fight me for this $10. I'm like, okay, I'll fight you. We got into this big fight. All the kids are in school. You know, fight, 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 fight. And I, I think I kicked his butt because he was really upset. And, uh, you know, my lip was busted and I had a little bloody nose. And, uh, and uh, they broke up the fight. He left. And I was just going to go to school. And through divine intervention, it's like God sent this little angel my way. And it happened to be my brother. My, one of my oldest brothers, Fred, who happened to be driving by the school, he pulled over, he saw my lip all busted up, he was like, well, George, come on, man, you know, clean up, you don't have to go to school today, I was like, no, no, see, this is how much I wanted to change, I was like, no, I gotta go to school and take this test so I can pass it, I'll take the test, and at lunchtime, I'll come home, and he was like, okay, he was like, you sure you're gonna be okay, I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll be okay, I went to school, he left with his girlfriend, and this is a story he told me afterwards. They left. They're a few blocks away getting something to eat. My girlfriend's brother says, she just said, I got a real bad feeling. We got to go back to the school. I come out for lunchtime. That kid I was there, he wanted to fight me again. I was like, okay, I'll kick your butt again. Let's fight. They, you know, all the kids got around and the circle. I'm going to take off my jacket. And his friend behind me, I see how he caught in my eye. I still remember it. Pulls out a 38. One, two, three, four. Point blank rage right through the back of my chest. There I lay in a puddle of my own blood in the streets of New York because of dope. I believe wholeheartedly that self-will pulled that trigger, but God's will made sure I lived to tell the tale. I believe why I did not die that day is for what's going on right here, right now, this very moment, July 31st, 9.22 in the p.m., speaking at the 65th Conference of Fellowship Hall to the newcomer to let you know you don't have to end up like that kid dying because of addiction. I believe that wholeheartedly. You don't have to believe it. I believe it.
To the grace of God, I stand here before you. You can see God had a different plan. By all means, I should be dead. They were not flesh wounds. I was mortally wounded. Heart, lungs, stomach, intestines. I was in surgery for 15 and a half hours. Flatlined twice during that surgery. I was pronounced clinically dead for a total of 52 seconds. That's a long time to have, not have a heartbeat. But those doctors are doing God's work, my mother says. And for years, it was about my pain. Look what they did to me. Boo-hoo, poor me. I almost died. But when I were a fourth step and being a parent today, I could only imagine what my poor parents went through for 15 and a half hours waiting in a lobby of a hospital, not knowing if their little boy was going to live or die. And that's the pain that we cause those closest to us. My parents suffered more than me during addiction. Because at least I had the dope to numb my feelings. My parents had no, didn't have that. So if you think I'm grateful for being clean today, my parents are like, holla frickin' Luya. <laughs> like, we don't have to lock up the house every time he comes over. He's not stealing TVs while, the mother, while grandma watches it. He's not. <laughs> Thank God. You know, I, I, I was a mess. They told me I would never walk again. I had this thing called pseudo-traumatic paralysis or, 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 or whatever. My, I, I suffered so much trauma that my nervous system shut down. And they didn't know if it was going to come back. I couldn't move my legs. They, and they told me they don't know if I ever walk again. I walked just fine today. I had some bladder damage. They didn't know if I ever pee again. I had a, clo- uh, a, a, what, a, a catheter. Oh, my God. <laughs> Worst feeling in the world. <laughs> I, I pee just fine today. <laughs> I had some stomach and intestines problems, and I had a colostomy. If you don't know what a colostomy is, it is not pretty. It's pretty much a piece of your intestines hanging out of your body. And you got a bag around it. And if you have one, I empathize with you. I, I know what it's about. And they told me I might have that for the rest of my life. And this... Doctor wanted to do this experimental surgery like a year later, and they inverted, they inverted the intestines, they inverted the colostomy, and they didn't even know it was going to work or not. And and they did this operation, and I had literally a staff of nurses waiting around for me to poop. <laughs> and it finally happened hours later. If I can't be grateful for anything, at least I could take a damn dump today. I don't take that shit for granted, literally. <laughs> this is about the only curse word I'm going to say. But literally, I don't take it for granted. If I can't be grateful for anything, thank you, Lord. But you, you think something like that would, like, wake me up? I made all those promises to God, to, to, to everybody else, that I was done with that life. I was in the hospital for four and a half months. After four and a half months of excruciating pain, on the very day I was released, what I do? Stop at the dope man's house. 
They say bottom is when you quit digging. Down those staircases, from the first time I used, I picked up that shovel and started digging that hole. Started digging that hole. Just started digging and digging and digging. And that shovel is still with me today. It's still there. I can pick it up and start digging that hole even deeper. But as long as I got 12 steps in one hand and God in another, I got no reason to pick up that shovel. I got to keep busy in recovery. Because the disease can't hit a moving target. Just got to keep beat, you know, keep busy. Jupiter diving. You know what I'm saying? Just keep busy. We have to remain vigilant. So I just kept digging that hole, digging that hole, digging that hole, digging that hole, digging it, digging it, digging it. My parents had this bright idea that it was the Bronx that was the problem. We'll just get George out of the Bronx and we'll be okay. So a year to the day later, October 23rd, 1989, we moved from the Bronx to Deltona, Florida. And if you don't know what that is, that's like moving from Metropolis to Smallville. I moved from concrete and skyscrapers and subways and graffiti to graveled roads and green pastures and cows everywhere. I don't care if you put an addict in the middle of the desert, he's going to find ways and means to get more. And that's all I did was find ways and means to get more. I just found it, just found, just kept digging that hole, kept digging that hole, kept digging that hole. And then somewhere along the line, I just got tired of digging that hole. I just got tired of digging that hole. And I came to a place, I didn't even know it at the time, but I came to a place where I finally knew and felt what it was to be powerless. Now, when I started working steps with my sponsor, he said, make friends with Webster. I'm like, who's Webster? Is he a member of NAA? Does he have some clean time? Is he going to help me work the steps? He's like, no, dummy. He wrote a book. It's called a dictionary. Buy it. My first sponsor was big on definitions, on breaking them steps down by word, by word, by word. And if you look up the word powerlessness, powerless in the dictionary, it's a pretty, to me at least anyway, it's a pretty deep, profound definition. Webster defines it as powerless, the inability to act or do. Pertaining to my addiction, that suits just fine. I had no ability whatsoever to act or do anything in my life. I couldn't hold a job. I couldn't be a good son. I couldn't be a good parent. I couldn't be a good father to my daughter. I couldn't be a productive member of, of society. And I could not, for the life of me, stop using. And I'm talking about even with the most Honest desire. Even with the most honest desire and intention, I could not stop. All evidence to the contrary. My life's burning down. I got this. It's okay. I'm hurting nobody but myself. 
could not stop. Now, here's where the desperation comes in. I wanted to stop. I wanted to be a good father. I wanted to be a good son. I wanted to be a productive member of society. But for the life of me, I could not stop. And that's a desperate place to be. And remember, there's addicts and alcoholics right now in that very spot. So be grateful that we're not. Because by, before the grace of God, there go I. So when I start complaining and bitching about recovery and life, I just got to remember where I came from. I got to remember there's an addict just dying and wishing he could get that one day clean. So I just could not stop. Wanted to, but couldn't. And then January 2001, I had a bright idea. And if I throw it up, it has to be screwed up. The bright idea I had, it was just one substance. It wasn't all the other stuff. It was just this one substance. If I could stop doing that, I'll be all right. So January 2001, I worked what I call the three steps of insanity. First step of insanity, I admitted I was somewhat powerless over heroin, and my life was just a little bit unmanageable. I worked the second step of insanity. I came to believe that methadone could restore me to sanity. I worked the third step of insanity. I turned my will, my life, and my wallet over to the methadone clinic. And all I did was substitute one drug for another. You know what happens when we do that? We release our addiction all over again. I know we have our, some people have their opinions about that today, but I don't care what gets you here. All that matters is what keeps you here. So January, February 2001, I found myself in a methadone detox. With just a little bit, a little heroin problem. That's it. I'm not an addict. I just got a little heroin problem. Our, our literature talks about three principles that are indispensable. Honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. Another cool definition, another cool word, indispensable, meaning necessary, vital, cannot do without. If I'm not honest, open, and willing, I'm not going to stay clean. So I sat in that detox, dishonest, closed-minded, and unwilling. An amazing thing happened. You guys showed up. Messengers of hope, members of the H&I subcommittee, people who take meetings to treatment. And I sat in the back of the treatment center in denial aisle. <laughs> and you guys showed up and you guys gave your message. And it sounded really good if you're an addict. But I wasn't an addict. I just had a little dope shooting problem. But you guys planted this little seed on my spirit. I left that, I left that detox, smoking a joint on the way home, talking about, damn, it's good to be clean. Long as I ain't shooting dope, I'll be all right. From February to March 2001 was probably with the most, one of the most loneliest times of my addiction. No matter what I put in it, put in me, didn't fill me. Didn't fill me. It just stopped working. 
The day I got clean wasn't like I jumped out of bed like Fred Flintstone and said, yabba dabba do, I'm going to join N.A. and save the world and lay hands on people. And it took an act of God to get this out of clean. Divine intervention. And the story was something as simple like this. I ran back to my parents' house because I, I was the streets was not working no more. And I went back home and my brother came over. He fell asleep on the couch. Everyone went to bed. And my disease said, steal his car. Take his wallet. I said, okay. <laughs> so I good idea to me. I took his keys, took his wallet, stole his car, went on a two-week bender. All the money was gone. The game was over. It's like, well, I guess I'll go home now. So I'm leaving the neighborhood in Orlando, Florida. Divine intervention. Dope boy on the corner waiting me down. I pull over. He says he has to go re-up and get more. He'll give me a little bit now if they can borrow my car for two hours. And when he gets back, he'll give me some more. Sound like a damn good idea to me. I trusted this man. You know, they say we were hopeless drug addicts. I had a whole lot of hope that day. I hope he came back. I hope the dope is good. I hope my parents don't find out. I hope I don't go to jail. I hope if I do go to jail, my parents bail me out. A whole lot of false hope. Two hours turn to four hours, four hours turn to six hours, six hours turn to eight hours. I still don't know where the hell that damn car is. My, my brother told me at my first year anniversary, he said, you know, George, I was thinking, if that kid would have came back with the car, there's a good chance you might not be clean today. I don't know exactly that's true or not. All I know is that's exactly what happened. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. I go back to the house. Everyone's freaking out. Where's the car? And I'm like, it's just a car. Come on. <laughs> you can buy a new car. Why? Relax, people. Had no guilt, no shame, no remorse. I got real concerned. My mom said, I'm calling your probation officer. Like, oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. They're going to drug test me. That's Grand Theft Auto. I'm going to cause a new charge. I'm going I'm to go to jail. Look, I had no desire to get clean. I didn't want to go to jail. And when I think about that day, it was March 8, 2001. Out of the side of my neck, everyone freaking out, called the probation officer. Out of the side of my neck goes, just, just take me to the hospital. That's where people go get help. If I go get help, we please come call the probation officer. She bought it. Fine. It worked. I'm like, oh, crap. They took me to the hospital, to the emergency room. I walk up into the nurse. I'm like, nurse, I'm on a lot of drugs. If you don't help me, I'm going to kill myself. She says, okay, have a seat. So I sat down. <laughs> the nurse went to the back. My brother left. My disease said, Run! And everything in my spirit wanted to run. I wanted to run so hard, but I just couldn't. It's like the God of my understanding had his foot down on me and all his infinite grace and said, you ain't going nowhere. I could not get out of my seat to save my life. I cried suicide. I, I ended up this thing called the Baker Act because I cried suicide. I ended up in the psych ward. I wake up the next morning in a paper gown, paper slipper, asshole hanging out. I'm like, how the hell did I get here? What am I doing? I talk to the psychiatrist. I give him the story. He's like, well, George, you don't really want to kill yourself, do you? I'm like, no. 
It's like, well, you're an addict and you need help. So they lifted the the Baker Act and they took me to, to detox. And I went to the detox room March 9th, 2001. And mind you, it wasn't about getting clean. I was just going to buy some time, right? going to buy some time, make my parents happy, make a probation meal. I go into the detox room and it's just me, myself, my disease, and God. Didn't know it at the time. And I got to thinking, I got to thinking, I got to thinking, I got to thinking. And I always try to remember what happened to me in that detox room. And our first step in the It Works How and Why, which is our equivalent to, to the 12 and 12, clearly tells us, tells me what happened in, in that detox room. And it's funny, my clean date is March 9th. This is on page 9 of It Works How and Why. Funny coincidence, I like it. It says, many of us recall the moment of clarity. We come face to face with our disease. All the lies, all the pretenses, all the rationalizations we had used to justify where we stood, a result of our drug use, stopped working. Who and what we were became more clear. We could no longer avoid the truth. I got slapped in the face March 9, 2001 with the truth, and it slapped me hard, and it hurt. For the first time in my life, the truth became visible, clear, crystal clear. I could no longer deny it. Next thing you know, it was not about buying time. Next thing you know, I'm on my knees, crying them tears, praying that prayer. And I'm sure you guys know those tears. And I'm sure you guys know that prayer. The funny thing about it is, I cried them tears plenty of times before March 9, 2001. I prayed that prayer plenty of times before March 9, 2001. But I always had a reservation, always making those foxhole players, always had an ace up my sleeve, always trying to make deals with God, just get me out of this one. On March 9, 2001, there was no foxhole prayer, there was no ace up my sleeve, there was no making deals. God heard the... Truth in my prayer and lifted me up and gave me a purpose. And I've been clean ever since. Fourteen years and counting. I got one white key tag. One white chip, what you guys call it. And I hold on to that. This is a proven program of recovery. I think the most powerful statement that the basic text makes in, in chapter 7 in recovery and relapse, the most powerful, I think a ballsy-ass statement too, it tells us in recovery and relapse, it says, plain as day, we have never, not occasionally, sometimes, every now and then, only on Tuesday, maybe this addict, that addict, the other addict. No, it says we have never seen a person relapse who lives a Narcotics Anonymous program. I tell you what, I live this day in and day out from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to bed. Do I do it perfectly? Hell no. I fall short. I make mistakes. I act out of defect. But the one thing I have done perfectly since March 9th, 2001, is no matter what, I did not get high. That's the only first part of my first step that I can do perfectly. I don't use no matter what. I don't do it alone. I do it with a sponsor, a God, a home group, service work. That's how I stay clean no matter what. And I came, I, I, I went to treatment, 
And, you know, thank God for places like, like Fellowship Hall and Stuart Marchman down in Florida where, where I went to treatment too. And it was like re- recovery boot camp. And, and they fed us like recovery all day long for meditation in the morning, groups all day long. They would take us to outside meetings. I remember going to my first outside NA meeting. And uh, I don't remember much about the meeting, but I remember when they gave out the key tags. I remember this big biker guy named Terry T. And does anyone want to surrender to this way of life? And I jumped out the seat, and I walked up, and mind you, I remember sitting there and just felt inadequate, insecure. Nobody loved me. Nobody wanted me. And this man, Terry, who didn't even know my name, didn't know who I was, he gave me that key tag. He hugged me, and he said, keep coming back. We need you. I had no idea why this man with 20-something years needed my crazy ass, but he needed me for something, and that felt good. Why he needed me is exactly what I said towards the beginning of my story. As a newcomer is the most important person. He needed me because he knew that the newcomer is the future of Narcotics Anonymous. And, man, and I hanged on to that key tag and I fell in love with Narcotics Anonymous. And that key tag gave me freaking superhuman powers. I became recovery man. I was faster than the NA helpline, more powerful than the basic text, able to leave the NA service structure in a single bound. I was here to fight for truth, justice, and the NA way. I had the uncanny ability to talk shit on a drop of a dime. I would come into a meeting and share my profound wisdom on a 10th, 11th, 12th step at 30 days clean. And when I was done, y'all said, keep coming back. I was like, damn, I'm going to help these people. They want me to keep coming back. So I'll keep coming back. I've been clean a little while. I know what that keep coming back means today. <laughs> you know that sarcastic to keep coming back. You don't know shit, George. We're, you might as well be talking Japanese right now. We're going to tolerate your crazy ass. So just keep coming back. So I just kept coming back. I just kept coming back. And recovery has been the best thing that Heather ever happened. I fell in love with recovery. And I embraced all as- all aspirations of the recovery person. If you're new, I don't care where you go. If you go to AACA, NAOA, or whatever A. If you're working 12 steps and trying to stay clean and doing the next right thing and even and being a good person due to 12 steps, have at it. I, I just found my place in Narcotics Anonymous. Wherever you find it, that's up to you. So, like, I fell in love, and recovery has been so good to me. Everything in my life is a direct result of staying clean and working 12 steps in my life. I'm going to take you full circle now. I'm going to wrap it up. Full circle. About 18 months clean, I had the opportunity to go back to New York. I took my little girl with me. I really talk about it too much. That's a whole other story, but we'll get into that some other day. Um, but, you know, thank God that NA has given me the ability to be a father today. And uh, I took my daughter, when she was like nine at the time, and we went back to New York, and I, and I felt compelled to go back to this place I got shot. I just felt compelled. I just had to go there. And I went back to the place after I got shot. And I remember just being overwhelmed with gratitude and emotion. And, and the tears were, were coming down. And my daughter was nine years old. She didn't understand what was really going on. And, and, but out of the mouths of babes, she sees me upset. And she takes, she takes my pinky and she holds it. And she's like, it's okay, Daddy. 
You don't, don't be sad. I'm so glad you didn't die that day. If I would have died that day, that little girl would have never been born. If I would have died that day, I wouldn't stand before you today. Now, look how crazy God works. I don't know if this was, like, destined to happen. All I know is this is how it happened. If I would have never got shot in New York, I would have never moved to Florida because that was the only reason why we moved. I would have never moved to Florida. I would have never met my daughter's mother, and she would have never been born. I came this close to dying in New York to move to Florida to bring a new life into the world. I don't know if that was destined to happen that way. All I know is that's the way it happened. I felt compelled to go to a meeting. I'm in New York. I'm going to go to a meeting. My friend of mine in Florida gave me a meeting schedule for the greater New York area. And it's this huge meeting. But they got like thousands of meetings all over New York City. And I'm in the Bronx, right? I'm going to find a meeting. In the Bronx. Oh, yeah, I found a meeting at 8 o'clock at Blessed Sacrament School between Gleason and Waston down the steps to the cafeteria. The first place I used. I walked down those steps. It was like walking down the damn twilight zone. And you can drive right behind that door. You can't make that up. That's proof that my higher power, the God I'm understanding, had a plan. Not only for me, but whatever you believe in has a plan for you too. That this theme of this conference Changing lives. That's what the 12 steps do. You know, I, I touched on steps here and there. I'm not one of those speakers that, like, break down steps. I'm maybe not there yet, but, you know, I talk about steps here and there. But all I know steps are, steps are what recovery is. Because our, our literature tells us that if you or you or you want what we have to offer, then you're ready to take certain steps. These are the principles that make our recovery possible. What follows 12 steps. That tells me recovery is not possible without working, living, applying the 12 steps in my life. And the 12 steps will not only save your life, the 12 steps will change your life. Because I am no longer, I am no longer a using drug addict. I am a recovering addict. And who is a recovering addict? Most of us don't have to think twice about this question. We know. Our whole life and thinking is centered in N.A. in one form or another. The getting and giving and finding ways and means to get and give more. We live to recover and recover to live. Very simply, a recovering addict is a man or woman whose life is cared for by God. We are people caught in the grips of a continuing progressive journey whose ends are always the same, happy, joyous, and free. I'm an addict named George. Thank you for letting me share.